Hello, everybody. This is Jenny Lesko here with Rental Magazine and ForConstructionPros.com. I'm here today with Kevin O'Shea, Director of Safety and Training for AGF Access Group. Um, and they, AGF Access Group makes a type of equipment called mass climbing um, platforms. Or Kevin, can you can you clarify for me exactly what is mass climbing equipment and how does AGF what's what's the company's relationship to that equipment? Okay, the um, mass climbing work platforms is the industry term or description for what OSHA would call. Uh, a mechanized form of supported scaffold. So basically what we have, uh, it's not unlike a, maybe like a hoist that you would see on a job site, except that it's not for the transportation of personnel into and out of a building. It's to deliver them to a point elevated on an elevation where they can do some work, maybe like for windows, for stucco work, for brick and for block work, etc. Um, AGF Access Group uh, has a a partner in the group or a part of the group called Hydromobile. Hydromobile is uh, one of the manufacturers in North America of mass climbing work platforms. Okay. Okay. And so how, um, when this equipment is needed, it's, it's usually... Um, it's rented, am I right, um, from specific dealers? Is that how it works? Um, some of it is. Uh, there's a, okay. there's like a supply chain, uh, or there's like a dual supply chain direction, I guess. Um, there are many uh, mason companies in North America who prefer to own their own equipment um, for maybe for financial reasons, etc. But um, the, the mass climbing work platform industry in North America really uh, came to fruition on the back of the mason industry, in particular brick and uh, or uh, block in particular, I suppose, the heavier end of the brick and the block industry. And the reason it, it came to, to be so successful with them is because in North America, mass climbing work platforms were designed to lift high capacities, which made them really useful um, for brick and uh, block industry. Um, For that reason, there are many masons companies who decided that it would be advantageous to own the equipment with all the challenges of ownership that they would have to face. And uh, another, maybe say 50% of the market is supply to uh, the dealer network of a manufacturer who may then either rent or sell to their own customer base. So there's kind of a, a two-direction approach. Okay. In either case, um, it, the the erection of this type of equipment or the installation of this type of equipment is complicated, um, more so than, say, you know, renting a boom lift or a scissor lift. This is, we're talking about, you know, big pieces of of platform that are are have to be very safely erected in a very specific way. Um, and so, I would imagine there's got to be a certain degree of knowledge and training um, necessary in order for this to take place uh, safely. And with that in mind, um, 
in the uh, ANSI standards apply and OSHA regulations apply. Can you speak to um, just exactly what is needed to get this installed in a safe manner and compliant with everything that applies to that type of equipment? Sure. Um, with uh, a piece of mass climbing equipment, to, uh, it has modularity. It comes to uh, the job site uh, partially assembled or fully disassembled, it has a number of components and the construction of those components into a configuration that will provide safe access up into the structure is very important. Um, it is highly skilled, uh, the ability to erect and dismantle this equipment. It does require extensive training. There are regulations that come into play from OSHA ostensibly and then further information that would come from from ANSI. I guess the best way the best way to describe it uh, is on a simple term would be uh, if you've ever gone to IKEA and purchased some furniture and when you get it home you have to build it and you have to follow instructions and it's kind of easy to do it if you follow the instructions and it's kind of not easy to do it if you don't. Um, but you have that kind of can-do attitude, right? which is, I don't, you know, I don't need much help to do this. What can be so difficult about it? And then maybe you apply that in a more scientific way to a mass climbing work platform. The principle is the same. When you get it to the job site, some assembly is required to make the thing work. The problem or the challenge is, is obviously that it's much more complex um, uh, to, to build a mass climbing work platform. There are much more, uh, or there is much more in terms of rules, regulations, manufacturers' recommendations that one has to be aware of. And obviously, if you don't construct it properly, the results can be obviously a, a lot more serious than if you. Uh, uh, go back to the furniture analogy, you know. So there's, the stakes are much higher. The degree of complexity is higher. Therefore, the training, the education, and the regulation is of a much more stringent nature. And so uh, if you begin with the assumption, or not the assumption, I guess, but the fact that the regulations for mass climbing work platforms ostensibly come from the Occupational Safety and Health Act. Um, and in particular, we can begin with something called subpart F, which is the scaffold regulations within the construction section of the regulations, which would be 1926 regulations, subpart L. And the relevance of that is that there are rules in there for training, supervision, um, for safe working practice for what OSHA would call a supported scaffold. Supported scaffold comes in many configurations. So if you actually look at OSHA regulations, it will say in subpart L, here are the rules for a supported scaffold. And underneath there, it will say, what type of supported scaffold do you have? And it will give you maybe 10 or 12 different types of supported scaffold, and depending on what one you have, certain rules will apply to you. There are also certain general rules that will apply under the main section of the regulation before getting more specific into the subsection. The 
challenge that we have with mass claiming work platforms is that they really weren't in use in the US when the OSHA Act signed by Richard Nixon on the 29th of December 1970. On that day, it became a labour law. And on that day, it established the law for safe scaffold use and the requirements. The problem was that mass climbing work platforms were not really in use, and I don't even know if they were invented in North America at that point. So what we have is a rather an unusual situation where if you have a mass climbing work platform and you, or you own a mass climbing work platform, you go to OSHA regulations for advice because you want to follow the law, and you go to 1926 subpart L for scaffolds, and there is a general section which will apply to you. That section, for instance, will have the requirement for the erecting and the dismantling of the equipment to, to be uh, completed under the auspices of a competent person. Competent person has a legal definition within OSHA. That competent person must use, in the words of OSHA, trained and knowledgeable personnel in the accomplishment of that task, selected for that task by the competent person. So these are regulations that would apply to any type of supported scaffold. Then we would then go and look for the subsection that might apply to mass climbing work platforms, and there is none. So now what we have is we have a general section for supported scaffold that we can comply with, but there are no more specific regulations that apply to mass climbing work platforms within OSHA. In fact, the words mass climbing work platforms don't appear in the 1926 uh, subpart L or anywhere else in OSHA regulations. They only appear in one section called Appendix C, which is the list of national consensus standards, where ANSI A92.9 which is the specific standard for mass climbers, appears in that section. That section is a list of ANSI standards that have not been incorporated by reference by OSHA. And what that means is that OSHA has not given up the regulation of the product to ANSI. Now, let me give you an example of where that might be different. 92.2 was originally a 1969 standard for rotating boom lifts, a, a product w within the same kind of category, powered access. Um, A92.2 being uh, an ANSI standard that existed before 1970, in other words, before the OSHA Act. When OSHA put together the OSHA Act, they, they brought together all of the ANSI standards that existed at that point, and they incorporated them by reference. And that's a legal term, which means when you look at the OSHA regulations, it will say, if you own a rotating boom lift, do not look at OSHA regulations, go immediately to ANSI A92.2, because we have incorporated it by reference. Um, because mass climbers did not exist in 1970, there wasn't a standard to be incorporated by reference for mass climbers. So it's quite difficult and challenging as an owner of a mass climbing work platform because you, you want to follow the rules, you want to follow the law, 
So you go to OSHA and there are general requirements that you have to comply with. Then there are no specific requirements that you need to comply with. So where do you go from there? And so the best advice the industry can give you would be at that point to go to the ANSI A92.9, which OSHA lists as a consensus standard, but has not incorporated by reference. A little bit convoluted, but unfortunately that's the uh, the reality right now. Okay. So as far as getting the proper training um, for this, uh, where... I mean, where does somebody even begin and um, what's involved with it? Okay. Um, Well, first of all, I think it's fair to look at what one might achieve by by getting trained or by getting your staff trained if you're an owner of the equipment. Um, What you're aiming to do with them when when they complete their training is you would like them to be uh, qualified which is another OSHA definition, a legal definition. Um, and so if you have qualified staff, what you have is under the, the OSHA legal definition is you have someone who, by either qualification, degree, experiential equivalent or otherwise, has proved that, that he or she is capable of undertaking the task at hand uh, and understands the risks and uh, is educated to safe work in practice. That would be someone that you would then be able to say, as an employer, I have a qualified person. Um, Secondarily, if you give that qualified person the authority on the job site to stop the job and take corrective action when they see something that's unsafe, then that would be a competent person, which is the second important OSHA definition. So in in order to discharge an employee's duties under the the 5A1 clause, or as most people would know it, the general duty clause, which says that an employer must provide a place of employment and employment which are free from recognized hazards. The way that one would do that is you would appoint a competent person or a qualified person, depending on whether there is supervision required or not, who has knowledge of these hazards and who has the experience and the knowledge to put together a safe working practice to abate these hazards on behalf of employees and those who might be affected by the actions. So as an employer, this is your legal obligation. The way to make sure someone is qualified, obviously then would be to have them trained. The way to then have them trained in a way that you would protect your liability would be to have them trained and qualified by an external source. That external source could be the manufacturer, obviously. That external source may be an industry body such as IPATH or Scaffold Industry Association or the Scaffold Nexus Industry Association. Um, and you may avail either the manufacturer, the SAIA or IPATH, for example, to come in and independently train and certify your employees to be able to do the job that you want them to do. They will then follow the rules and regulations that are first established by OSHA. They will then follow the advice that comes out of the ANSI standards, and they will also follow the advice and information that comes within the manufacturer's 
owner's manual. So what you're going to get is you're going to get training from an external body or source uh, which will be able to independently certify and verify the experience and the qualifications that you want your employees to have. Uh, and that, at that point, that training has become very valuable, not only to your employees to be able to work safely, but to your business to be able to protect your business liability. So mm -hmm. training is, at that point, a very important commodity. And right. the more valuable that commodity is, then the better that it will protect you. And the value of training increases exponentially when you have that training verified by an external source who has credibility, such as manufacturer, SEIA, or IPATH. Okay. Now, um, many of our listeners may be familiar with the, um, the type of training setup that happens for mobile elevating work platforms where there's a classroom or theory portion and then a practical um, portion, and both have to be completed for it to, um, to be a compliant uh, training. Is it similar for mass climbing uh, work platforms? Is it a, you know, the same type of a program, or how does it work? The answer, the answer would be yes on a on a on a on a on a pretty simple basis. But when we get into the the, the various levels of training, maybe that's the best way to describe it. The, you, you, like a boom lift or a scissor lift or a mup, if you want to if we want to use that term, uh, there there are essentially a couple of types of training there. There's uh, operator training. Um, there would be uh, a trainer who may train operators. Um, there may well be uh, a, a technician training. With the mass climbing work platforms, um, we also would have technician and operator training, um, but there's another category called installer. In other words, the person who builds, dismantles, and, and repositions that equipment. Uh, and that becomes uh, uh, rather a more serious uh, an involved issue. Um, training, uh, installer training initially will probably take somewhere around three days of combined classroom and practical hands-on. There will be a practical assessment. There will be uh, uh, testing, written tests. Um, there will be an overview of regulations, safe working practice, hands-on. Um, and at that point, the industry may only qualify that individual uh, as being uh, an installation assistant until they have worked with, i.e. a competent person, uh, for example, and completed somewhere around 15, 20 setups, uh, at which point uh, it may be assessed that they are then able to go uh, independently without supervision and, and carry on installation work on their own. So that, that there's, there's a much more involved process for mass climbing work platforms in that sense. Uh, and it's, it's really important um, that owners follow that blueprint because what we have at the moment is um, we have very comprehensive courses from the SAIA and from IPATH we have very comprehensive courses from manufacturers in general in North America. And mm -hmm. the risk that sometimes an employer or a, an equipment owner takes is 
elect not to use those training courses, which the blueprint for which is almost identical in all three, um, and to basically go out on their own and, and somehow do their own training. Um, and the situation can very quickly occur where, uh, uh, God forbid, they have a, a, a an injury accident or something of that nature. And the first thing that, that, or one of the first things an investigator will ask is, where did you get your training from and what format did it take? And if there is a blueprint for training that essentially is is exactly the same, or at least 95% the same within the two main industry bodies and the manufacturer, and the owner of the equipment has chosen to use a format that doesn't match that or is inadequate when uh, kind of uh, examined against that blueprint, that there's immediately a liability issue for that employer. So quality training, following the industry training advice, um, is very important on a mass climbing work platform because of the degree of complexity and because in order to combat or to train to that degree of complexity, the industry has evolved with a very uh, uh, serious and scientific set of courses that, that, that have to be completed. Okay. Um, do you want to talk about the the series of, of courses that need to be completed or, or where um, where somebody could get more information to... You mentioned you can go through your manufacturer or, or IPAF or... Um, I'm sorry, the Scaffolding Association, which I can't yep. remember the acronym for. But um, what about the series of courses and how do you find out what you need? Where do you go for that? Um, the, honestly, the best thing to do, um, uh, you, obviously, you, the reason that you require training is because you have either purchased or you, have, you intend to rent um, mm-hmm. some equipment. Um, if you, uh, now, normally, if you rent that equipment, uh, the rental company is going to come and put the equipment up for you and dismantle the equipment. They will train your operators to operate the equipment safely. They will train them to do the pre-shift or daily inspection that's required by both the manufacturer uh, and by ANSI and also probably by OSHA. Uh, you go back into OSHA law and, and there's also a requirement for a pre-shift inspection. So um, the inspection and the safe use uh, would normally come via the rental company uh, providing training for you. Um, if you're purchasing a piece of equipment, uh, then you're purchasing it normally from either a manufacturer or from a dealer of a manufacturer, for instance, then that training will be offered to you. That training for either operator training or installer training or assistant installer training or trainer uh, assessment will come from the manufacturer or the manufacturer's dealer or from the rental company. The uh, gap or the flaw that may exist in there is if you are buying a piece of equipment from someone else, another owner. So let's say one mason company buys a machine from another mason company as an example. Um, There is a situation there whereas the new owner of that equipment um, and as part of your due diligence uh, for your responsibilities now that you own that piece of equipment, the first thing that you really should do at that point is find a way to contact the manufacturer or the manufacturer's local dealer to make sure that you have information on a number of areas. One would be to make sure that you're getting the right type of training uh, 
for the people who you want to have certified within your organization. Two, you would want to make sure that you have the right information with regard to any engineering changes or product updates that may have been issued by the manufacturer since that equipment was initially manufactured and now between that time and when you now own that piece of equipment. And third, you probably would want to make sure that you have someone who is qualified fully assess that piece of equipment and make sure that it complies with OSHA and with ANSI before you use it. So at that point, um, you're verifying the equipment from a reputable source and you're also identifying your training needs along with someone who is qualified to help you to assess them and who's also qualified to be able to impart that training to you. So, as I say, the only instance that you would need to think about is if you're a mason buying from a mason or an owner buying from an owner, stucco company buying from a stucco company, for instance. Um, It's important to remember at that point as a new owner, really to contact the manufacturer or the manufacturer's agent is, is, is is an extremely important and responsible thing to do before you start to use that equipment. Okay. Um, is there anything else uh, that you would like to talk about, Kevin, today uh, with regard to what uh, what contributes to the safe use and installation of this type of equipment and what um, someone who is thinking about renting it or buying it should keep in mind? Any other bits of wisdom? Well, I think, I think there's, yeah, there's a couple of questions that you asked there, and, and let's take the second one first. Um, For someone who's thinking about buying the equipment, they're thinking about buying the equipment for a reason. Um, You know, in in my experience, nobody buys a piece of equipment because they might use it. You know, generally, somebody is buying the piece of equipment because they have a job that's beginning very soon, and they think that this piece of equipment is going to help them to make money, either by reducing cost or by increasing productivity, or both. That being the case, um, then it's important to remember that reducing cost and increasing productivity is great as long as you do it safely. So now we've identified three things that this equipment can do for you. Okay, It can increase productivity, it can reduce cost, and it can increase safety. And, And on many occasions... On many occasions, if not all occasions, the equipment will do all three as long as it's used properly. This is the attraction of mass climbing work platform equipment. The key to all three of those is to have experienced and trained personnel perform the initial measuring of the job site. Um, Again, I used the IKEA example a little while ago, and, and another very good example to use here would be if if you've ever had your house measured for new windows. A salesperson comes in, measures up for your new windows, and you agree a price with that person. They go away, and six weeks later, the installation crew appears with your new windows, and the very first thing the installation foreman says when he or she comes in the door is, what idiot measured this up? The windows are not going to fit. And The reason for that is because 
the salesperson either didn't have enough experience about the installation process or didn't pay enough attention to measuring for the installation process, was more interested in selling and the commission. It's exactly the same with mass climbing work platforms. Uh, I talked about the 501, the general duty clause that the employer has or the owner of the equipment has as a legal responsibility to provide a safe working job site free from recognised hazards. The first time that anyone will find any hazards is when the salesperson walks the job with the prospective customer to measure up for the installation of the equipment. That measure up will identify hazards on that job site. Those hazards need to be flagged up, they need to be dealt with, and a configuration, an installation, a plan of action needs to be put in place to abate all of those hazards. That's the salesperson's responsibility at that point. The salesperson is the, is the initial interface between the employer's responsibilities under the general duty clause and the customer's requirements. And in the middle of it, that salesperson is performing a legal function. That salesperson is measuring up to provide the productivity, yes, to increase profitability, yes, and to make sure that it's done safely, absolutely. And it's the third part that's really important. And so in order for a salesperson to go onto a job site and to measure it up for safety, that salesperson needs to be trained to recognize the existing and predictable hazards that may be on that job site. For instance, overhead power lines, setting up equipment next to the entrance to the job site where there's a danger that trucks turning into the job may make contact with that equipment, underground basements, voids under the structure. What are they going to attach the equipment to? What concrete strength is on the structure? How much is it the capacity the customer wants? Does the customer want to lift £5,000 or £20,000? That will depend or it will impact, sorry, on the configuration of the equipment. The salesperson has to establish all of that because the salesperson is going to come up with a price. Let's say that price is 20 grand. Nobody is, if so, nobody's going to go back to that job and say to the customer, by the way, we didn't measure it up properly. We need to put another machine in. It's going to cost you another three grand. Nobody's going to take that. You know, and, and on many occasions, the equipment owner or the rental company, when faced with that decision in the past, has some, sometimes I've seen disastrous decisions made. Customer doesn't want to pay for the extra machine because somebody missed something. The rental company doesn't want to put another machine out there because they are not going to get any money back for it. And then they have this kind of meeting of the minds on the job site and somebody says, well, why don't we put an extra 10 feet on the machine that's over there? And then somebody else says, well, it says in the manual you can't do that. And then they all agree, it'll be okay, it's only for two weeks. And that's where everything falls down. You know, the, the whole argument, the whole safety argument falls down at that point. So one of the most important things to remember with this equipment is Whoever walks onto the job to measure up for the placement of the equipment, the type of equipment, and, and analyzes the capacity, the length, the height, positioning, that person really requires to be qualified in that legal definition 
that I talked about from OSHA. Okay. Interesting. It's uh this is a very involved operation that goes on here with the mass climbing equipment. It's uh it's fascinating. Um any any last last bits that uh to clean up the subject for today? Yeah, I think I think it's worthwhile to remember um as an owner of this equipment um uh, we've talked about legal responsibilities, we've talked about working safely, we've talked about, you know, the responsibilities that you have. The thing that you should remember as an owner of this equipment is that you don't have to do this on your own. SAIA, IPATH manufacturers will help you with any questions you have, will help you to interrogate an owner's manual that came with a machine that you just don't understand will help you to be safe, will help you to be legal, and will help you every step of the way to control your liability for your business. You don't have to do this on your own. All you have to do is find out who the manufacturer is or who your industry organization is, pick up the phone and call somebody, and you will get help, and you will get, you will get free assistance and free advice, and then someone will organize to come if you need it, and train your people. That may cost you some money to do it. That will be the best money that you ever spent. Okay, great. Now let's um, make sure everybody understands who these organizations are that we've been talking about. Um, one is IPATH, the International Powered Access Federation, which can be find, found at www.ipath.org, I believe. And yep. please, please spell out the other again. Um, I, I can never. Um, the second one it. is the yeah, Scaffold and Access Industry Association, which is the SAIA, and. Their website is www.saiaonline.org. Excellent, excellent. Okay, well, thank you so much, Kevin, for all that good information today, and uh, and hopefully uh, we'll save some lives. <laughs> thank you. Hope so. 